Now, it's a bit of a shame that we had that video at the beginning because it kind of stole my thunder a little bit. I was going to do the entire sermon in that, that kind of way, just reenacting the whole thing as a dialogue between the three-year-olds. I'm going to start a petition for an Oscar for that little girl. Uh, let's just pray. Father, I thank you for an opportunity to worship you. I thank you that you are an incredible God and you deserve every bit of worship that we can give you and then infinitely more. Uh, Father, I just pray that our praise will just be something that is just pleasing to your heart. And now as we come to your word and just try to learn something from your word, help us uh, just have ready uh, and susceptible hearts to your spirit. Help us just to focus and to understand what you would have us to say and just uh, make this simple and straightforward. Father, we pray for the children as well through the, in, in Sunday school. We just pray that you'll bless them and may it be a real time of blessing uh, for those children as well. Father, just be with us now. We ask for your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. Like around here somewhere. We come to Acts chapter 16 and verse 11 this week. And uh, I've titled this, I actually can't see that far, uh, Conquering a New Continent One Step at a Time. As Acts 16 verses 11 to 15 say this. From Troas, We put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. And from there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women that gathered there. One of those listening was, was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God, The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. We're continuing with Paul's second missionary journey. Last week, Paul was receiving a, a vision about a man of Macedonia who said, come over to Macedonia to help us. Now, Paul, true to his own convictions and his desire uh, to be used by God and to be manipulated by God and just to follow the will of God, sets his mind, along with his his companions, that they're going to go to Macedonia. The route they take is uh, through, uh, from, we're kind of, we're in this area here, and this this would be the island uh, of Samothrace, a mountainous island, and then up into Neapolis and following on to Philippi. So we're up in this kind of section of uh, what we would call Greece. Now Paul's been commanded to go into Macedonia, what we would call modern-day Greece, or one section of Greece. He doesn't really know why, but he's been told to go there. And it seems that God has a, a real purpose for him. And actually, just as we start off reading, uh, we see that um, it was a very kind of favourable journey, if you like. God was behind them. A lot of commentators have looked at this word, uh, sailed straight for Samothrace. And they've interpreted this as, it has an implication of having a favourable wind. The wind was behind them. And it really only took them a day to make this journey. Now, when you read in Acts chapter 20, basically the same journey, uh, but in reverse, takes about five days. So it's quite clear that God is with them. And he's behind them and he's pushing them on. And this is, this is a journey which is an act of obedience. And so God is going to bless it. And it seems that Paul and company have a very specific starting place in mind. They've gone through Samothrace. 
They've gone to Neapolis, and, but each day they're not really spending a great deal of time. They're just moving on the next day, moving on the next day, moving on the next day. But when they get to Philippi, well, things change when they get to Philippi. It's all night stop-offs until this city. And it's an important city. If you want to find out more about Philippi, I suggest Paul Mullis is probably the person to speak to. He seems to know everything about everything kind of around that, that area, so speak to him. I've got a very limited uh, understanding of, of Philippi. But what we're told is that this is the leading city of Macedonia. I think the implication is that it's, it's... Well, there's one of two interpretations. One is that it's the main city in this part of Macedonia, or it could just be that it's the first city. It's the first major city that they came to. But certainly as Paul and uh, the his friends arrive in this city, they, 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 the mindset changes. Let's start evangelizing. And whereas it's all been just moving through these other cities, when we come to Philippi, it's a different story. It's an interesting place, Philippi. Probably not going to be an easy place to evangelize in. It is, um, it's a Roman colony, and therefore essentially worked by exactly the same rules as Rome itself. It probably didn't have much of a Jewish population. And in fact, you read elsewhere in the scripture that in Rome, the Jews had basically been evicted. They'd been told to get out of Rome. And this is a Roman colony, probably followed the same, uh, same situation. So there's probably a very small Jewish population in Philippi. And that's going to become something that's quite important later on. You probably could have called it Little Rome, to be honest, as one of these places. It was a, a military establishment, probably a commercial centre, and probably going to be the first European city to receive the gospel. And that's massive. And we'll come back to that shortly. But it's going to be a difficult place. Paul is fortunately a Roman citizen, and so it's probably something to keep up his sleeve. He's certain rights, and you know, he has certain level of protection. It's not quite necessarily the same for all the people around about him, his, the rest of his company, but he's got a certain degree of, of um, protection in this place. But if you were a Jew... Or if you were a Christian in Philippi, life was going to be tough. You're going to have to try and adapt. Because as a Roman colony, it was not the kind of place you wanted to be as a Jew or a Christian. And Paul and company have been in this city for a couple of days. And we're not really led to believe that any evangelism has really happened in the first couple of days. It might just be that an opportunity hasn't presented itself. It might be a choice that they've made themselves, that they're going to wait until the Sabbath but there doesn't seem to be much movement in the way of preaching and evangelizing in the first couple of days. And that might well be quite a frustrating thing. They've been given this vision, come to Macedonia, help us there. And when they get there, life's a bit tough. And getting that first opportunity to evangelize is a difficult thing to do. And what they actually need is perseverance. And that might be you. And quite often that's me. Someone in our mind, a friend, a family member, a colleague at work, somebody who lives around about us, and, and we're really desperate to just get that first effort in there, that first opportunity to evangelize, and just to tell them about what it means to be a Christian for you, and, and it just isn't coming, and it's difficult. And it can be a little bit demoralizing, and you wonder, how am I going to get that first opportunity? Persevere. Persevere. Because God will bless those who really want to do something for him. And if there's somebody in your mind, and that opportunity to evangelize hasn't just happened yet, persevere. Stick with it. And so for Paul and his friends, what were they going to do? We find out in Philippi, there's actually, there's not a synagogue. 
There's not much of a Jewish population, we've said, and that would usually be the starting off point. Usually, on arrival of a city, um, the preachers would usually go to the synagogue because we know that there they're going to find people who are, who are maybe at least um, worshippers of the same God, who, who have an understanding of Scripture, of Old Testament Scripture, but there isn't a synagogue in Philippi, so what are they going to do? Where are they going to go? Where are they going to make a start? And when it comes to the Sabbath, uh, we see what their, their method is, we see what their idea is. It says, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. Now, Josephus, the first century historian, says this, that it was customary in a place where there wasn't a, a synagogue, a, a, a normal place for the Jews to go and to worship. What they would do is that they would appoint a place by the river, probably outside the city, somewhere that they could go and they could do all the ritual cleansing that they need to do, and then they would appoint that as a place of worship. Now, Paul, somebody who's, who comes from a very uh, staunch Jewish um, background and really understands these things very well, probably knew this. And so this band of Christians go out of the city to the, the river to find a place where they would expect this is where the Jews are going to be. This is where we, we can make a start. This is a logical place for us to be on the Sabbath. And on arrival at the river, they find just a small group of very loyal worshippers of the God of Israel, just a band of women. And when they get there, they're probably quite excited to see Paul. Here's a man. Here's somebody who probably looks a little bit like a rabbi. He seems to talk as if he might be a teacher of scripture. And I would imagine this band of women are very keen to have Paul come and sit down and his his companions and, and to speak to them about the scripture. And therefore, he is suddenly a very welcome guest. And it's a great, momentous opportunity. And in fact, it would be really easy to read through this part of Scripture and to miss how momentous this is. This is the first time that we're aware of that the Gospel is preached in Europe. And that's huge. Because, praise God, throughout the generations and the centuries, that Gospel message has spread through Europe. And many have come to know Jesus Christ as Saviour. And many are now true worshippers and followers of him, who own him as Lord and Saviour. But it started here. It started in Philippi, in this day, when Paul and his companions sat down at this river and just spoke to this band of women. The first evangelical event in Europe. A couple of points. A couple of small points. Firstly, it's just a small group of women. Just a small group of women. A vision from God has called these evangelists to, this, to, to these shores, into Europe, into Macedonia. And you might have expected, Paul might have expected, I probably would have expected that when I got there, I, I'd be meeting with the, you know, the King Agrippa, the big, big wigs, the really kind of powerful men and I would have been expecting I've been called over by God in a vision and I'm going to go in there and I'm going to be speaking to like the main men and, and the people in authority and the ruling councils that's who I'm going to be speaking with and that wasn't God's mind that's not what God had actually had prepared for Paul they lacked number this group they were just small they lacked authority and they lacked possession and they lacked all of the things that you maybe would have wanted for your first congregation just a small group of women. They'd been driven out of the city 
because there wasn't any place for them, for, for their faith in this city. But this is who God had prepared as the first people to receive the gospel. But from them was going to come further evangelism. From them, a church was going to be planted. From them, this, well, this church was going to have a letter written to, and, and that's a letter that we still read 2,000 years later and we still appreciate and it's still a blessing to us. And it all started with a small group of women. Roman soldiers were going to be saved. Read in Philippians chapter 4 and, and read about how Roman soldiers were going to be saved in Philippi, but it all started here. There is no group too small. There is no genre of people too insignificant for the gospel. We are told in Scripture to go out into all the world and to preach the gospel. It doesn't say, go and pick your favourites. It doesn't say, go and find the people that you think are going to have the biggest impact. It doesn't say anything like that. It just says, go and preach the gospel. And for us and for me, maybe at times I need to get off my high horse worrying about you know, who's the most important person that I can tell about Jesus and just looking for who God has put in my life, in my sphere of influence, who I can tell them about Jesus. There is no person, no people, no group too insignificant. We all need Christ. Secondly, it was just a small group of men. This city was a major event. And if you were to go into the city and have a little look uh, what was going on, you would have seen Roman soldiers, you would have seen retired centurions, you would, have seen, you would have seen very powerful people, very mighty warriors, you would have seen incredible guys who, who had fought and lived through battles and wars and, and whatever. And if you'd walked through the cities, you'd have seen incredible things. You wouldn't have noticed this small group of men wandering through the city, making their way out of the city walls and heading out towards the river. You just wouldn't have seen them. You wouldn't have noticed them because there was so much other stuff going on in this incredibly popular and important city. But, and as um, is written in the McLaren commentary, I'm not going to steal his words, he says, the mightiest thing done in Europe this morning was when the apostle sat down by the riverside and spake to the women who resorted there. And all that was going on in that city on that day, all of the might and all of the wonder and, and whatever, we don't know any of it. Nobody talks about it. But today we read and we talk about this small group of men going out of the city and sitting by a river. And that was the greatest thing that happened in Europe that day. And you wouldn't have looked at them and thought much about them. And I wouldn't. And the people around about them didn't. But actually, not only is there no, no group or person small enough or insignificant enough for the gospel, but there is no person small enough or insignificant enough to take the gospel. And you might not think that you're much. You might think that, that your sphere of influence is actually not that small and you don't know many um, kind of CEOs of major companies or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Wherever you are, whatever your position in this world is, God wants you to take his gospel to whoever he has prepared for you to take the gospel to. And what was going to happen here was going to have huge ramifications. But it, it started with obedience. It started with men just being obedient God, to God's commandments and just taking his gospel. 
And tomorrow you can, or this afternoon, my limit is tomorrow, you can reach out in your limited sphere and, and just wh- whoever is there, you can tell them about Jesus. And you, can, you might well start the ball of gospel impact rolling in a totally new direction with ramifications that you just don't understand. And thirdly, God can t- turn a small start into a Christian continent. Because this was not really very significant, maybe, to a lot of people in the grand scheme of things. It was just a small group of women with no power, sitting by a river, praying and worshipping their gods, and then in comes this small band of men who nobody really cares about, and he starts, and they start talking, and, and some women get saved, and some families get saved, and a church is planted, and a city receives the gospel, and a bit like when you're invading a country, Start with the main city and then move on. And if you get the gospel into the main city, then maybe the other little towns around about it are more likely to become susceptible. That's exactly what Paul's idea was. Let's hit Philippi with the gospel, start a church there, and then we'll spread out from there. And it's exactly what happened. And 2,000 years later, the impact is absolutely massive. Christianity Today estimates that last year there were 560 million Christians in Europe and it is still growing and what started off as just a trickle was soon going to become a gentle brook that was going to lead to a raging torrent of evangelism through the continent and lives were going to be changed cities, countries, continents but it started small and that's okay it doesn't matter that it starts small because God is at the helm and God can do incredible things with small things. So if you think your impact is small, it doesn't matter. shouldn't matter to you. doesn't matter to God because what God can do with something small is just incredible. And so we come on to meet this one particular woman. This woman was Lydia. And we read this. Uh, one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira called Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. She's probably quite a wealthy woman. She's probably the head of her home. We don't know why. Maybe her husband had died or, or whatever it was, but she, she seemed to be quite a powerful woman. She was a, a seller of purple, so she had money. Um, she was a true worshipper of God. It's made clear to us. Probably a pagan uh, turned Jew, a proselyte. And scripture makes it clear that she had a true heart and a desire to worship God. She was seeking him and keen to hear the message that Paul was going to expect. And maybe it wasn't the message that she thought she was going to get. She was maybe expecting to get something from a Jewish message, something about the God of Israel from a Jewish perspective. But what she gets is something very different. And the next phrase is a bit of a tough one, to be honest. Because it says that, that God opened her heart. And that's not necessarily an easy thing to understand. The Lord opened her heart. And, and we see in other parts of Scripture that, that God, in his divine will and his, in his sovereignty, he shuts down hearts. He hardens hearts. And he opens hearts. And according to what he knows to be best, he has made this woman susceptible to the gospel, to the message that Paul is going to bring. Now, I'm not going to get too caught up 
in the theology of uh, predestination this morning. That's something for you to think about and worry about yourself. I don't understand it. You know, the Bible presents to us that God has elected those to be saved. But he has also made it very clear in his word that the scripture and salvation is for all people, for the whole world. And I can't marry the two things together, and I'm okay with that. I know there's two sides to the coin of salvation. And when I start trying to look at heavenly things through human eyes, things get a little bit distorted. And we're not going to worry too much about that this morning. That's not really our our topic. But we do know that God has prepared the heart of Lydia. And she's sitting, and she's ready. And God's already been speaking to her. And God speaks in in a variety of ways, and he prepares hearts in a variety of ways, through bereavement and through hard events, or, or through a quiet word that somebody shares, or in a very quick way, or in a very long, drawn-out way, but God prepares hearts. We know that. And Lydia is prepared for this message. And so Paul comes and brings the message of salvation. And it's important to remember that salvation is the Lord's. It wasn't Paul's or anything like that. It it was the Lord's. Our salvation, if you sitting here are, are a child of God, a Christian, you've accepted the message, God's message, that Christ died on the cross and took the punishment for your sins and he bore it all and he finished it and he completed the work and he did everything and there is nothing that you or I can add to the work. Praise God if you believe that. If you have made that step to have that faith and to accept Christ into your life as Lord. But understand that the first step was God. God reaches out. God comes close. God searches you. God opens up your heart so that you might understand and receive the gospel. It's God's salvation. It's not us. It's not our work. It's not us working out to get to God and to achieving to understand what he has done. It's God that does it all. It's his work. And if you are saved, praise God, because he has opened up your heart so that you can understand and receive his message. And Lydia chose to accept it. And in doing so, she entered a whole new world. One where she is now viewed as sinless. Not because she was sinless, but because Jesus has already taken all of her punishment. What a position she now finds herself in. She now walks a different path. She knows God in a different way. And she can live a life of holiness. Not because she is holy, but because God has made her holy. And if you're a Christian, so can you. Same situation you find yourself in. And praise God that God has opened up that kind of opportunity for us. And if you're not a Christian, please look into this. Please look into what Christ has done for you, what God opens up for you, the the life that God has prepared for you for when you trust Christ as a saviour. And so this woman, Lydia, she becomes a Christian. And uh, I'm going to move on. I did. Oh, yeah. And when she becomes a Christian, there's a couple of vital things. First of all, take that one off. She's obedient. First of all, she's obedient. And she's obedient in two ways. Firstly, she's baptized. And secondly, 
She's gracious and hospitable to those around about her. Now, the salvation of a soul not only can change a person, but it must change a person. And that's not always clearly visible. When I got saved, I was 10. And, you know, from the day before and the day after, you probably wouldn't have seen that much difference. Because life as a 10-year-old is not overly complicated. And, and I wasn't involved in that much bad stuff, really, in the grand scheme of things. I was a sinner, and I needed Christ, and I accepted him, and I got saved. But you wouldn't have seen a great deal of change, to be honest. But when we become a Christian, when we get saved, our perspective has to change. Our motivations have to change. There's been a total inward transformation of the heart and the soul, and there has to be something visible that comes out of that. There must be. And one thing is that Lydia understood that she needed to be baptised. And that must have been something that Paul was preaching about. As he was telling about Jesus, he must have also explained to her the need to be baptised. And so she says, okay, well, I'm going to be, I want to be baptised. And she is. And baptism is a vital thing. It does not add to salvation. It is not part of salvation. You are saved fully, and then we are commanded to be baptised. It is a physical showing of what has already happened on the inside. But it's vital, and it's important, and it's one of the ways that we show obedience to God by being baptised. It doesn't add to the salvation, but it shows it. And I believe, and it is the stance of Regent Chapel here, that, that child baptism, infant baptism, is not biblical. That christening isn't biblical. That we are baptised to show that we have become Christians and it comes after the choice to put Jesus first in our life and to make him Lord. And I know that many churches, they baptise um, children just to show that they are part of the church family. And it's symbolic from a different perspective. But I don't believe in a region, we don't believe that that's the biblical model for baptism. Baptism is a very important act. And like many others before have done, may I encourage you, if you are a Christian and you are not baptised by immersion, please look into that. And please talk to somebody about it. And please wrestle with that and, and, and find out. Look into it in the scripture and find out if that is what you believe that God has commanded for you. Because I believe it's a very important thing. We see it in, in the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 as well. He, he was saved. And then he said, here is water. What hinders me from being baptised? What stops me? And therefore he was baptised. And baptism should be something which is done as soon as possible. As soon as logistically possible after salvation. So please be encouraged to look into that if you haven't made that step. But secondly, Lydia, not only is she baptised to physically show what has already happened inside her, but she also... Um, changes in the way that she acts to the people around about her. Now, I'm not saying that uh, she wasn't already a hospitable person and generous, but now there's a real sense of compassion and a desire to show hospitality to those around about her, and there's a focus. These people who have brought me this message about Jesus, these people who have told me about the gospel, like, they have become a real focus of her love and her compassion and her affection, and she really wants to show them hospitality and compassion and generosity. We are all told to be hospitable. 
And there will be some people in our church who are naturally just very hospitable, very keen and open and to, to opening up their houses and their, their, their money and their possessions and just doing whatever they can. And there are people who are naturally or spiritually gifted for that. But actually we're all called to be hospitable. And it says in First um, Peter chapter 4, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. In First Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus verse 8, it says in particular of the elders of a church, they're not to be greedy but to be hospitable. And that's actually something that we're all supposed to be willing to open up our, our possessions and to share and to just be kind and generous to those around about us. And for Lydia, that's exactly what she was going to do. It says, if you consider me to be, believe in the Lord, um, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. She was absolutely determined. And one thing, maybe a, a, an ethos for us all that she had was, for those who have received grace, be gracious. And Lydia understood this. And she realized that she was in a new position herself. She was in a new family. She had a new home. She had promises about a new home in heaven. And because of this new position that she found herself in, she just wanted to share and just, and just open up her, her life and her heart and her, her possessions and her house. And it's an inspiring thing. And the disciples decide that they will. They'll be persuaded. Maybe it didn't take much of a persuasion. We don't really know where they were staying. Maybe the beds weren't that comfortable. Maybe the food wasn't that good. Maybe it didn't take much persuasion for the disciples, really. But they've decided that actually, yes, they will. They'll go and stay with Lydia and her family. And as her family have also accepted Christ, they've also been baptized. And I think for the disciples, really, what they were actually more keen on was this was an opportunity just to go and be with new Christians and to share and to teach and to encourage and to love and just to help to this family, this new family of Christians, and just to help them and support them. Because from this group of women and from Lydia and her family was going to come a church which was going to do incredible things. And read the book of Philippians to see just exactly how incredible the things that they were going to do were going to be. And so this is, in fact, a very small event, maybe in the grand scheme of things, but with great ramifications. And so as we finish this morning, may I just encourage you, if we tell people about God's salvation, God will do the rest of it. And he'll do incredible things. And if we're faithful and if we're true to our calling, God will do the rest. And for this small band of women, this small group, who are sitting beside a river, just worshipping God, as this group of Christians come in and just are honest and open and just do what God has asked them to do, which is to tell people about Jesus. They accept. And what is going to come, the ripples that are going to come out from this are going to be massive. And if we take that same stance, just telling those people about Jesus, those people that we can, about Jesus. God will do incredible things. I believe that. And when, when we believe that as a church, and when we believe that individually, that God can do incredible things, I believe that God will do incredible things. And so this morning, maybe just learn a few lessons from Lydia and from the situation around about her. 
and maybe just be encouraged just to give the rest of it over to God, to do our part and leave him to do the mighty work, the continent-changing work. Because if there's one thing we see from Scripture, he's certainly got the power, and he's got the ability, and he's got the will. And so let's just do our part and leave the rest to him. Let's just pray. Father, I thank you that for this band of women, you made yourself, you, you prepared their hearts, you opened up opportunity, and uh, I thank you that these women were saved. I thank you that they trusted Christ and were willing to just go on for you. Father, I thank you that you have done incredible things. And just as you say you saved people 2,000 years ago, you save people today. Father, help us as a church, help us as individuals, as believers in Jesus, just to take uh, the opportunities that you give us and to tell people about Jesus. And Father, then I just ask that you would do incredible things. And Father, I just pray that you would change our country and change um, communities and just work through your spirit in an incredible way. Father, I pray that you'll bless us, keep us safe today, bless us in all that we're going to be doing. I just ask that you would uh, just go with us as we finish and, and part today. In Christ's name, amen.